Welcome to the Edge Talk Radio Network, your weekly source for information, empowerment, and connection. The Edge Magazine and its advertisers bring you inspired interviews and conversation on learning and healing, on our sacred journey, and on topics that expand beyond time and space. Now, welcome today's host. And thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Mary Stoffel, and I am an animal communicator and shamanic practitioner. I've been doing professional animal communication for about almost 20 years now. And in that time, I have um, had a relationship with a woman that is a very, very good friend of mine. Her name is Karen Rungi, and she is my guest this evening. And Karen and I met at an advanced animal communication seminar in New York State. And Karen raises, breeds and raises Entelbuchers. And Entelbuchers are Swiss mountain dogs. Hello, Karen. How are you tonight? Hello, Mary. I'm fine, and I'm very happy to be here and share what I can about this lovely breed. Well, thank you so much. And I should mention that you uh, currently are in Nova Scotia, Canada, and uh, that you have been breeding Entelbuchers for 17 years now, which is just about the same amount of time that you and I have known each other. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the breed and where it came from and uh, and how you got started doing this? Well, the Entelbucher is the smallest of the four Swiss mountain dogs. Um, there are four breeds. The most common one is the long-haired Bernese, and the other ones are the Greater Swiss, the Appenzeller, and the Entelbucher. And they're all short-haired and all Four breeds are tricolor, black, brown, and white. Um, They were considered to be farming dogs. They were used to move the cows from pasture to pasture. And the breed almost died out. Um, In the early 1900s, there was a gentleman in Switzerland named Albert Heim. He was actually an alpine geologist, and he was quite a fan of the Swiss breeds. And he went up into the mountains and collected some what we would call the original breeding stock. And then at a dog show in 1908, he and other members of the Swiss Kennel Club began sorting these dogs out and named which ones were representatives of the four different breeds. Okay, and and this was in Switzerland that this was? Yes, this was in Switzerland, yes. Okay. Now, the way I got started is I was actually, um, I had a career in IT, and I was working for Hewlett-Packard at their European headquarters in Switzerland. And one day I went swimming. Uh, I went to a little beach on the shores of Lac Léman, or Lake Geneva, and I met a Swiss dairy farmer who had a young Entlebucher pup, a young male Entlebucher pup named Barnaby, and he was teaching Barnaby to swim. And we began speaking, and we spent some time together and started dating. And within a short period of time, he asked me to marry him, and I quit my job and moved with him to Quebec, where we lived on a dairy farm and had two children. And several years later, for his birthday, his parents sent over a female dog, and now that I had a female and a male, I started doing research on the breed and what it 
took to uh, to start breeding. I, I knew nothing about breeding, and uh, I was quite curious. And I found a local vet, and I said, look, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it right, and I want you to teach me how to become an ethical breeder. And that's how it began. Mm-hmm. And the rest is history. <laughs> and the rest is history. So it's been, I think I'm, I'm so, entering my 18th year breeding now, and I've had, um, over that time, I've had, let's see, I would say 30 litters. So it's really only an average of, you know, a little less than two per year. It sounds like a lot, but it really isn't that many. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I've, I, of course, know many of your dogs um, through animal communication because oh, you and yes. I have worked together over that time frame, um, whenever you've had a new litter or whenever there have been problems or issues or even just celebrations over, you know, get finding the right couple for the right pup and, you know, making sure that things just worked out right. So I've been intimately involved with many of those litters as well. And you, so and you how also... Does, how does the, Oh, I'm going. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and you've also helped me a lot when some of my own dogs have been making transitions at the end of their lifetimes. Right, that's been another uh, thing that we have worked on together. Yeah, yeah, one of those things that is a part of what comes with the job of doing animal communication. Very rewarding, but also very, very, very sad. So, um, how does the Antel Booker? differ from the other mountain dogs. Now, I know that it's the smallest one, so is it only in size that it differs? And Or even like the Great Pyrenees or some of the other mountain dogs, how does the Entelbucher differ from them? What well, makes this breed so special? The Entelbucher is basically a herding breed, and so in, in that respect they would share characteristics with, let's say, Border Collies or other herding breeds. Um, They're very intelligent. They're easy to train. They have incredible stamina and strength. And generally, they they have a very high pain threshold. Um, I find that most of my clients are looking for family dogs, but many of them are active. They like hiking, camping, um, outdoor sports, and they're basically looking for a dog that, that can accompany them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in their outdoor activities. Mm-hmm. The One of the book- things that I do a lot is I go to a, quite a few dog shows, not just um, all breed shows, but I also go to agility trials. And just within the last couple of years now, I have seen en- Entelbuchers doing agility. And they're fabulous at it. They are extremely talented and very agile and, and as you say, very intelligent. And agility is just right up there, Ellie, right, just as you say, right up there with the Border Collies. And the first time I saw an Entelbooker, um, I, I stopped in my tracks and I said, oh, my goodness, is that an Entelbooker? And the, and the person turned to me and she says, oh, my God, you're the first one who's actually, who actually knows what this is. <laughs> So they're often funny. they're often mistaken for mixed breeds because they aren't well known. The Bernese, which is large with long hair, has more in common with the Greater Swiss, which is Greater Swiss, which is the larger breed with short hair. So they're both very large in stature and don't nearly have the speed of the Entelbucher and the Appenzeller, which are the smaller breeds used for herding. Mm-hmm. Um, when the breed was first, shall I say, recovered in in the early 1900s. 
there was a feature called a congenital bobtail. So some of them were being born with naturally short tails. For many years, um, the tails were docked, and now because of certain rules and advances in issues around um, animal cruelty, uh, for example, the province that I live in, tail docking is not allowed since 2010, and I myself stopped docking the tails back in 1997. So uh-huh. when the tails were short, people would look at them, they would say, oh, it's a Rottweiler and a Beagle. So they're often mistaken for mixed breeds, even though they are purebred, because they aren't that well known. Uh-huh. Uh, well, haven't they just been... Um Recognized by the American Kennel Club, though? Yes, there was a um, process which took a few years in which first they were introduced and then there was um, a period in which the breed was qualified by numbers and information that had to be provided to the AKC, and now they are an approved breed in the AKC. When I began breeding in 1996, they were already approved by the Canadian Kennel Club. There was a breeder in Alberta whose father had uh, business dealings in Switzerland, and so she had accompanied him on a trip and ended up bringing back breeding stock from Switzerland, and she did all the legwork to introduce the breed to the CKC. So I was quite fortunate when I began that I didn't need to do that. Now, didn't you bring some dogs over from Eastern Europe at one point as well? Yes, I have imported several dogs from a longstanding breeder in Slovakia. And she's been a, um, her name is Jana Liptyova. I think she's changed her name now. It's the kennel is Balihara Ranch. And she has provided me with some very good breeding stock, which I've used over the years. So it's not just in Switzerland that these dogs are, it's, it's throughout Europe. It's throughout Europe, Germany, Austria, Holland, even up in the Scandinavian countries and many of the Eastern European countries. I On Facebook now I um, am in touch with breeders from Russia, from Lithuania, from all different countries. It's quite fascinating to see um, how many people are involved in breeding and showing. I, I myself have not shown my dogs, but there is... Uh, a lot of interest now in the show ring with these dogs. They're quite striking. Yeah, well, they're gorgeous. I think I, I think they're very beautiful. But I, uh, you know, I do um, about five all breed shows a year, and I have not seen Entelbuchers represented at all in any of the shows that I go to. Well, as I was saying, I think I think many of the people in North America are looking more um, for companion dogs for you know whatever type of activities they they wish to have them for. I did sell um a few years ago I did sell a dog to another um breeder, well she wasn't a breeder at the time, but a woman here in Nova Scotia and she actually went on to show her dog and obtain a, a CKC championship. Mm-hmm. And last year I think she bred her dog for the first time with um a male who was also an AKC champion. So that was quite the quite the event in <laughs> in the annals of breeding. I believe it, yeah. So so the the breed is beginning to make inroads into the show ring here in North America. And you also mentioned that it's um, that it is very good at herding, so that's its heritage. I would imagine that it would be good also at tracking. Um, exactly, they've been used for for search and rescue tracking. Um, I've even heard of people 
using these dogs to do, and I, I'm not familiar with the sport, ballroom dancing, where the dogs really? actually Really? Oh, yeah, learn. yeah, yeah, where they, where they dance with the dogs, yeah. Right, they, the dogs mm-hmm. learn to do steps, and, and it's quite um, it's quite fascinating how much we can teach, or I should say how much they can learn mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in their desire to connect with us and and to share activities with us. Right, right. I know that um, these dogs are, as you say, are very intelligent, but they also um, will have will form a very strong bond with their people. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I tell when I'm talking to people on the phone who are asking about the breed, I say to them that this dog will get as close to you as you let them. And I mean that both in the figurative sense and in the literal sense. Um, if you let them sleep in the bed, they will. I certainly have clients who um, let them sleep in the bed. I have other ones who confine them to the floor and even other ones who don't even let them in the bedroom. But um, at another level, their desire is really to be with their people. They consider us to be part of their pack. And if one of the humans doesn't take the role of pack leader, then the dog will attempt to do so. <laughs> so it's usually it's usually a good idea for one of the humans to um, to be in charge. And that, I don't mean by that to be dominating or that a dog has to be a robot, but that the the that the dogs look to us for direction um, and uh, to to decide what kind of activities we're doing. They can certainly express their opinion. Um, I know I've learned a lot through you and through courses I took on animal communication. Um, but just be, just because you understand what a dog wants um, doesn't mean the dog always gets what they want. <laughs> right, or should get what or they want. Or should, yes. <laughs> but, they, but they're wonderful so, companions. I know even if I'm going out to do errands, many times my dogs will say, can't we just come in the car? They They like to be with me. They'd rather be with me in a car or walking down the sidewalk in town than, than they would be to be left at home alone. So if you are one of those people that wants a dog that is ready to go whenever you are, wants to be involved in whatever it is you're doing, and and is up for anything, an Antelbucher is a very good breed to look at. It's a great breed. And and I would say they have a lot of joy, or we'd say in French, joie de vivre. It seems to me that I have never seen... I rarely would see a dog like this sad. Um, they're not what I'd call couch dogs or couch potatoes. Even if they're sleeping or appear to be sleeping, they're alert and they're ready at a drop of a hat to play or go for a walk or to participate in some kind of um, activity with me. Hmm. Um, the other day now, I, because I was... Because of their, their herding background, do they have natural guardian uh, instincts as well? They definitely have guardian instincts. Um, I tell people that you can shape that instinct to a certain extent by the amount of socialization you do. If someone lived in a remote rural location where they couldn't socialize a dog, they would have more of a guard dog than somebody who might live in an urban situation where the dog would be exposed on a daily basis to many people. I've I've had clients um, in New York City who really enjoyed having the dogs there. They were able to live in apartment buildings. And I've also had people who've lived out in the country and the dogs were, were more guard or watchdogs. So an uh, environment has a lot to do with that. It has but a lot the natural to do with that. Uh, talent is there. Of course. Okay, got it. Of course, it um, is 
So, so you said that you were a novice breeder when you first started to do this. What do you consider is what would make a successful dog breeder? What is it that you've learned along the way? Mm. Some of the more important things to know. Well, at a logical level, we would say the most important thing is to start out with healthy breeding stock, and these are. There's a lot of books on breeding. There's a lot of websites on breeding. Um, to be an ethical breeder, I would start with healthy breeding stock, which involves doing different tests about hip dysplasia, different eye tests, DNA tests. But more than that, to be a successful breeder, it means that I really care about where these dogs are going. Um, at a certain at a certain level, I, I fall in love with the dogs, and I also fall in love with my with my clients. And Mm -hmm. some of them have kept in touch with me over the years, and other ones really, uh, once once they have the dog, they go back to their life, and I accept that. You know, sometimes I keep in touch with people by email or via Facebook, and other times people really don't want to continue the relationship with me once they have the dog. And I've had many people say, especially upon seeing the pups, they say, how can you let these puppies go? Well, at a practical level, I can't keep all the puppies that I breed because they grow up into dogs. But at another uh-huh. level, I consider myself, I, I sometimes I laugh and I say I'm the puppy portal, that these puppies actually come through me. And over the years, and in part through different experiences I've had and also through conversations that you and I have had, Mary, I've really come to believe that the dogs come, the puppies come to be with specific people. And sometimes, for the most part, they stay with them during during their lifetimes, and sometimes they even will change families for whatever reason might occur. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any um, examples of something like that happening where well, just the right I I have dog? a few examples. Um, quite recently, I had uh, a situation where there was a family with young young children in um, in New England, and they had um, a wonderful young female, and they had trained her, and she was in a situation where she, um, I think they were living at a private school where the father worked, and then they bought a house out in the country and moved away, and the dog didn't see nearly as many people every day, and it, it actually affected her her behavior. And they started feeling like she just couldn't settle down. And they made the decision. It was a very difficult decision, but at some point they finally made the decision that she might be better off somewhere else. And a client of mine in Canada contacted me, and she actually had a puppy from the same litter, a male. And I said to her, look, this has come up. Here's a family who's looking um, to rehome the dog. Uh, Can you think of anybody that you might know? Because that's something I offer is a lifetime assistance if this would ever come up, and that's something that a a good breeder should do ethically is to always to assist any family that has one of their dogs um, mm-hmm. in a rehoming situation should that be necessary. And she said, well, let me check with my next-door neighbor. She said they, ac- they absolutely adore uh, our dog. And within, I think, two or three weeks, uh, her neighbors had driven down to the States, picked up the dog, uh, brought her home, and now the brother and sister um, have a, a little door between them in the fence dividing the two properties, and they can visit each other. Oh, and, how fun. And they just told me that the, I mean, the, the new owners are so happy, and the little female is just ec- ecstatic that she has another entelooker to play with. 
Oh, that's so, very cool. But but there have been really interesting situations where um, someone might look at the puppy photos that I've put up, and, and a certain photo strikes them as, that's my dog. It's almost like they have a sense of, of recognition. Or when when we have a litter of puppies, we give them what I call their, their puppy names, and it actually becomes part of their registered name. And, and often is not the name that um, the new family calls the dog by, but mm-hmm. sometimes they do dec- decide to keep those names. And I had a litter a few years ago, and um, oh, I think it was my it was my T litter. Uh, we go alphabetically; we go up one letter with each each litter traditionally, and giving in names to dogs. And I had the last puppy that was born in that litter. We called him Timo, short for Ultimo, which is Italian for last or ultimate. So we called him Timo. Mm-hmm. And I and I had. I was quite surprised that there were quite a few people who were interested in this one particular pup, and I said, well, that's really, you know, how am I going to decide which dog, um, you know, which family will get this puppy? And then I got an email from someone who had purchased a dog from me many years ago, and his dog was getting older now, and he said, you know, I'd like to get another pup um, before this one dies because the older dogs are so good at teaching the young pups the rules are kind of helping them get get settled much easier than uh-huh. if they were doing it on their own. And when I looked at his e- his email address, the email address was Timo, and then there were a few letters after it. And I said, I said, well, what does this mean, this Timo? And he said, <laughs> and he said, oh, that was the name of my first Enzelbuker puppy that I got from Switzerland. And I laughed, and I and I told him about this. You know, I said, well, we've got one right now named Timo, and so that's who we went to. It was just. It, you know, I can say there's signs and there's signs and am I reading too much in or not, but uh, over the years, it's amazing how things fall into place. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just have that sense that uh, this is the right one. This is. The I, right I get one. a sense, and it, and, it, and it comes in so many different ways. If if people have the, the ability or the privilege to come to Nova Scotia and actually meet the puppies, and it becomes very obvious um, which one is they're going home with sometimes the connection is just unmistakable and uh, mm-hmm. i i remember one one litter i had when we still lived in quebec and there was a gentleman who came up from texas and he said oh i don't believe any of this stuff and every time he'd turn around and he'd say and which one is this and which one is this and it was always the same puppy it did <laughs> and after a while he said i guess this is my dog and i said yes i guess it is and in the in the beginning in the beginning i i did um I did what's called the puppy personality profile, which I had read about and discussed with a couple other breeders. And it's a kind of a test you do at seven weeks, and there's different criteria. You, you, you have somebody administer the test that the dog has never seen in a place they've never been. So it might be a room in the house they haven't been in, or it might be somebody else's house. And it, it's a way to help you try to get a sense of the personality of the dog, whether they're uh, you know whether they're more assertive, whether they're more submissive, and what I found in doing the test was that the results that I might have come up with at my location weren't necessarily consistent with how the dogs behaved once they were in their new location. Oh. And, and over time, because of these different experiences of people connecting with different puppies and and some pretty amazing stories, which hopefully I can share a few more. Um, I started to develop this other way of looking at things, basically saying, you know, I'm just here I'm just here to, to give these puppies a great start and read the signs. Mm-hmm. 
And if mm-hmm. the signs say, and, um, this one's going here and this one's going there, or somebody has a, feels a particular affinity, um, um, I do have the final word. I do, you know, it's not my clients who decide. I do tell them, you know, you're, you're free to express your preferences, but it's my responsibility to make the final decision. Um, I do know of one breeder in the States who tells me she doesn't even let people uh, express their opinion. She makes all the decisions. So that shows really? that we can, oh yes. So that shows that we can have a very different approach. Breeders can have a very very different approach to how they how they match up their pups and the and their clients. Mm-hmm. I well, have, I I get questions all the time as an animal communicator with people calling me and they are looking for. Uh, they may be looking for an animal that wants to reincarnate, and they're looking for a special or a particular dog. And they want to know, they see a litter or they see a puppy, and they want to know, is this my puppy? Is is this so-and-so reincarnated? And then I have to check in with them and find out, is that spirit the same? And I always tell people, you know, don't you have to be careful with this because they have a new body and they may be a totally different breed like this and they're not going to be exactly the same as the dog that left. But they may have certain um uh energies or characteristics or mannerisms that will remind you very much of that other dog. And what I always tell them is it's the heart connection. That's how exactly. you know that exactly. your heart recognizes their heart and vice versa. And they know. The dogs know. And like you say, when they when they can meet face-to-face, that's mm-hmm. when you really know when, mm-hmm. if that connection is there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a situation recently, um, um, an older couple who were in their 70s, and they had had um, a series of Scotties, and after the last one, the woman said, you know, I don't want another Scotty. I want a different breed. And she went through a dog book, and she picked this breed out. And she called me up, and she was a little hesitant at first. And she said, well, if I tell you why I'm really calling, she said, you won't talk to me. And I said, why? <laughs> because because you're calling to tell me that your dog has died and you think he's coming back as an Enzelbucher? And she was so shocked. <laughs> and I said, of course I'll talk to you. I said, why Why would that be a problem? And and we went through um, a process where where she, and I think I even talked to you also on this, but she um, she told me what she thought the dog would be like. And when the litter was actually born, there was one that was much smaller than the other one. She said, oh, I'm sure it's him. I'm sure it's him. And he needed a little extra TLC in the beginning. And, um, and she spoke, because she and her husband are older, she spoke with... Um, her daughters just to make sure that if something happened to either one of them and they could no longer care for the dog that one of the daughters would take them over would take over the care of the of the pup and both of her daughters said mom why are you getting this dog this isn't the right dog for you why don't you just get a you know rescue dog and and the mother was saying well i don't want to get a rescue dog and now that they have the dog both of the daughters are completely smitten with him (laughs) (laughs) that's great yeah, one lose. But one they lose, knew lose. right off the bat that he she was knew. there. She huh? knew. She knew right away. And she said, even when, and she said, I don't expect it to be the same dog. She said, but I recognize enough. And she said, even if it isn't Merlin, she said, I know Merlin had something to do with this dog coming to me. And she said, that's enough for me. 
You know, you did talk to me about that one. Yeah. I remember Merlin. Yeah. And yeah. another thing that I've noticed over the years, in the beginning, I used to get, oh, my goodness, I might get 10, 10 emails a week, 15 emails a week, calls, things to follow up on. And as the years have gone by, what I found is that the number of people has actually fallen off a bit, which is good for me because it's a lot of follow-up to do. But the people that do get through to me are the people that I'm looking for. They're more open to this kind of connection. They're more open to the idea that, that a dog could actually be destined for you. And, and um, so the people that that are connecting with me or that are contacting me seem to be more on my wavelength, which mm-hmm. makes it really easy for us to communicate. And then you truly are the portal to get exactly. the right dog to the right person. Exactly. exactly. Oh, that's, that's and, and really I, cool. And, and I can have a lot of fun and, and enjoy these little... And I, yes, I still cry when, when they leave. I cry when I go, if I'm shipping them to the airport, I still cry. And then the first call I get or the first email I get, and so many people have said to me, even a day or two after the puppy has arrived, they say, I can't remember what life was like before the dog came. I can't remember. It seems like he or she has been here forever. Wow. And when I hear that, That's I say... Fabulous. It is. It's fabulous, and it and it. I may never hear from them again, but just that one moment of knowing that the right dog got to the right place mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. makes it all worthwhile. Absolutely, absolutely. Now you did mention too another thing that um, I've always thought has always been on my list of criteria for a successful breeder, and that's that you. Um, make it a condition that if something happens and they can't keep the dog or the dog needs to be rehomed for whatever reason, you take care of that or you uh, step in and and help get that dog to another place. I I certainly do. And if I couldn't do it, um, there's been, I think, very rare one or two situations where I would actually take the dog back here. But -hmm. most of the time I've been able to find um, another family either on my waiting list or somebody will just call out of the blue and, and they're looking for um, not a puppy, but they're looking for an adult dog. And, and it, it, I have never seen a situation where it hasn't worked out. Wow, and, that's uh, just great. It is. And sometimes sometimes a dog might come and and stay with someone for a while because they have something to teach or or something to learn. And then maybe when that's completed, they can move on to another place. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't pretend to understand all the the details of every connection between dog and human being. But I know in my own life, the dogs have been very powerful teachers and also um, great sharers of love and, oh, and, yeah. and unconditional yeah. acceptance. As much as I judge myself, they don't judge me. <laughs> great support systems. <laughs> Yes. So um, I'd like to go into more of the um, physical aspects of this now and Mm -hmm. and talk a little bit about um, maintaining the integrity of the breed as far as physical characteristics and and behavior characteristics. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that when you are looking for a good breeding pair, you're not only looking for the um the genetic line that you want you're also looking at um the uh the behavior of the dogs and mm-hmm. and 
is this what you want them to pass on to the puppies? So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I would say the personality is a combination of the genetics, but certainly also the socialization and how the puppies are handled. It's critical how they're handled in those first eight weeks. But I would not use, for example, um, if there was a male who had all these wonderful physical attributes and he was really aggressive or, or you know, even borderline dangerous, uh, I wouldn't mm-hmm. use them because I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to take the risk of passing on that kind of, that kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, I really... Uh, people have asked me, you know, many times, oh, are the, you know, are the males more aggressive than the females? And actually, I haven't found that to be the case at all. I found many of the males to be very laid back. And because I live with multiple females, um, sometimes I might perceive them as being a bit more assertive because they're competing with each other, maybe for my attention or or in a, a game of tug of war or something like that. But I have heard, for example. Um, I've talked to a few breeders in the States who have said to me, oh, you know, it seems like the males are getting overly large down here. Um, some of them are even larger than than the, uh, than the standard dictates. Um, mm-hmm. And I've also noticed that when you don't bring in fresh genetic, genetic stock, like um, other lines that are being created over in Europe, then the breeding pool gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and pretty soon, um, for example, there, there's a case, I think, down in the States where there's a, a dog that did very well in some dog shows, and so many people wanted to use them for breeding. Well, now you've got a lot of dogs who are interrelated who can't be used for breeding with each other. Right. So, so it's important to keep that, take that in, into, into account um, and keep refreshing this gene pool. I, I don't have kind of an investment in saying, oh, you know, I have 20 generations of the same dog. I am more interested in seeing that the dogs are healthy than that, that I keep a particular line going. Mm-hmm. Um, the dogs, all all dogs, um, purebred or not, um, can have the risk of hip dysplasia. Um, so we, we make sure that we don't use dogs with hip dysplasia. In Europe, they'll actually breed dogs with mild hip dysplasia. So if I'm importing a dog... From Europe, I'll make sure that neither of the parents had hip dysplasia. It's not a guarantee, but it certainly puts the odds in my favor. Mm-hmm. So um, just like a lot of breeds now, that that is something that you constantly watch for. Yeah, exactly. And and we, we look for things um, like eye health. There, there was, uh, or there still is, but um, a condition in the antelope group was called progressive retinal atrophy. And it usually didn't show up until the dog was in midway through life, and, and as the condition says that the retina would atrophy. Now we have a DNA test. We can find out who the carriers are, and we just make sure we don't breed carriers to carriers. We only breed carriers mm-hmm. to clear dogs, and that means that um, none of the dogs will be afflicted. None of the offspring will be afflicted with this condition. So, so you know, you, in, you in an ideal world, excuse me. Excuse me. You, t- you pay a lot of attention to that DNA stuff, making sure well, that... Well, yeah, and, and if there's more tests that are developed down the line for other conditions, then I would certainly um, have those tests carried out, too. Different breeds um, have DNA tests that are developed specifically for conditions that they're trying to eliminate. Um, the problem comes when you become so selective that you have nothing left to breed. You say, well, I can't breed this one with this one because this one has a little of this and this one has a little of that. So sometimes you just have to use your best judgment. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I think it is, and that's where you bring in fresh stock from Europe. Exactly, and I think it's also important to be. I, I've seen some people they identify so much with their dogs. They'll say, "Oh, this is the best dental looker in the world," <laughs> and nobody has the best dog. I mean, mm-hmm. we might want to think so, but we have to be. Uh, we have to step back a little bit and be objective and, and realistic about about the dogs that we may, even though we may love them, we we also need to be able to see their strengths and their weaknesses so that we don't double up on the weaknesses. And if we're not able to do that, then we can bring somebody else in that can do that objectively. Right, right. And so those are some of the warning signs that maybe it's time for you to stop being a breeder. Yes, if you can't do that, right. If you can't do that or you won't do that, then maybe breeding isn't isn't um, the right thing for you to be doing. Mm-hmm. So um, you mentioned the I thing for the Entelbucher. Mm-hmm. Are there any other um, uh, physical things that you are currently aware of that, yeah, that you're trying to avoid? Yeah, and there's something called the ectopic ureter syndrome, which has occurred. I, it's not something that I've dealt with much, but I know that there are tests to make sure that that the ureters are properly formed for breeding. Um, now, what is that now? Ectopic ureter I couldn't hear syndrome. you what you said. Yeah, it's called ectopic ureter syndrome. Um, there have also been some issues of glaucoma in the eyes, and most of the lines have some form of cataracts. Um, there is hmm. a type of small cataract called the posterior polar cataract, which generally doesn't interfere with the vision. So I would say it would be very difficult to say that there are none of these dogs that where that has been eliminated. But for the most part, even the dogs that I've had, is if they've developed cataracts when they've gotten older, they still seem to be able to see quite fine in terms of getting around mm. for their daily daily activities. Mm-hmm. How long do uh, antibookers normally live? What's their average lifespan? I would say an average dog would live between 10 and 12 years. Um, mm-hmm. I had one pass away last year. She was almost 16. And then, unfortunately, I lost another one to um, very rare bone cancer in the jaw, and she was just over 10 years old. So I would mm-hmm. say generally from 10 to 12 years if if you're taking good care of them, which includes you know, giving them a good quality food. I've had clients who have um, done the raw food diet. I've had clients who have cooked food for their dogs. And then, you know, at the other end, I have people who feed basically a high-quality um, commercial food consistently. I myself am kind of in middle of the road. I feed premium food, but I also make sure that I um, augment that with lots of uh, fresh fruits, vegetables, bones, um, organ mm-hmm. meats, so, not just for the nutritional variation, but also for the dog's interest. They really enjoy having different things to eat. Right, the variety, just yeah, like a dog man- would you- in the wild. Exactly. If you imagine us eating the same thing day after day after day, how boring that is. Well, it's just as boring for the dogs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you had mentioned something that I was going to follow up on, and I, I lost it now. So we'll go on to something else. Um, what are some of the difficulties you've run into as far as breeding? What are what are some of your trials and tribulations? Well, Obviously, the first question is: Is the breeding does the breeding take? You know, sometimes we do um, a breeding and and the bitch doesn't become pregnant, and that's always a disappointment. The gestation period is nine weeks, so we generally know by let's say about five, five, six weeks, we can see um, a change in the in the size. Um, if not, 
Well, we wait till the next heat. Um, there are options in terms of using hormones to bring a dog into heat. I've only done it a couple times. I don't like to interfere too much with their natural hormonal cycles. Um, mm-hmm. I might only do that to make sure that the dogs aren't being transported during extremely cold or extremely hot weather. Um, whelping can be a challenge uh, just because the dogs are the puppies are um, doing well on the inside we have to get them out so uh, I did hear of one breeder once on the west coast in the states who told me that she always did cesareans because that was just what she decided to do Um, I don't like doing surgery if it's not necessary Um, as the puppies are coming out through the birth canal they can come out head first they can come out breech they can come out you know tail end first and there's always that risk when the umbilical cord is being compressed during the birth process that the puppy um, starts gasping, uh, trying to breathe while still inside the um, the, um, the sac with the fluid. So it's a beautiful process, but also there's um, a lot of uh, tension until the puppy is actually, each puppy comes out of the birth canal and we've got them breathing and then suckling. And so sometimes I would do actually call it mouth-to-muzzle resuscitation or we have um, like a little, a little, I can't remember what they're called, but to, to remove the fluid and, and, and we you know rub the puppies and we have like a little heating pad to you know make sure that they stay warm when we're bringing the next ones out. And once all the puppies are out, it's quite, um, it's, it's, oh, it's almost a, a spiritual experience to be sitting there and just feeling all these new lives in the room all at once. The largest wow. litter I ever had was 10 puppies, and the smallest one I've ever had was three. So there's been um, a lot of variation in between those, those two numbers. Mm-hmm. Once the puppies are out, of course, we check them for any physical deformities which might interfere with their ability to nurse properly. Um, I've never had this, but I've heard of people having pups with the cleft palate, which would not allow them to to nurse properly. Or if a puppy is particularly weak, they might not be able to nurse naturally from the beginning, and then that would require... Um, you know, either giving them a supplemental feeding either from the mother's milk or a, a milk replacer. Um, I'm sad to say that probably in a couple of my first litters, uh, if I had to do this, I didn't realize enough about the puppy's anatomy um, and might have, you know, been using a dropper to put to put milk in the mouth and instead of it going um, down to the stomach, it might have gone into the lungs and I, I probably I've lost at least one puppy because of that. Mm-hmm. Now, since then, I've learned how to um, put a tube down into the stomach so that if I'm going to give supplemental milk to a very young pup, I can do it safely. Uh-huh. Um, it's it's possible, it's rare, but it's possible that a first-time mother um, really isn't interested in being a mother. Um, not all. Yeah, what do you do in a situation like that? Um, you do a lot more work than you anticipate. <laughs> That, that did happen to me once. You become I had, the mother, huh? Yeah, you become the mother. I did have one dog once, and she um, she had a litter, and she really didn't show that much interest in taking care of the puppies. So there were a couple older uh, females in the in the household that did a lot of licking and cleaning. Um, she was willing to lie there and let them nurse, but she really she, well, she didn't want to play with them. And so that was her only litter. I thought, well, if this is the kind of dog you are, I'm not going to ask you to do this again. And that's um, mm-hmm. also respecting what a dog is here for. She was actually my, um, she was here more as a companion to my daughter than she was 
as as a breeding dog. And I, you know, I respected that that's what she was here for. It only took one try to figure out that, <laughs> that breeding, <laughs> breeding was not her. She, and then I have other dogs that absolutely, I had one dog. Um, not only does she love having puppies, but she loves other dogs' puppies. So if even before she started breeding at the age of two, if there was another dog in the house that had puppies, uh, once the puppies were, I'd say, four or five weeks old, she just couldn't wait to play with them. That was how much fun she had. Wow. So, so they really do have very distinct personalities. Very distinct personalities, and and that's what I try to explain to people. I say, you know, you read the breed description, and it says, you know, the dog is intelligent, the dog is like this, the dog is like this, but, you know, each dog is individual. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then... Well, I give you a lot of credit for honoring the one dog's um, re- desire not necessarily to be a mom then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. very interesting. It is, and 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 I think another thing is, as far as when when you get a dog, um, I tell people, you know, you need to train the dog, but you need to also learn who your dog is, and it's kind of a give and take thing. Um, the three most important commands that a dog needs to learn are come, stay, and stop. So you know if if it, you know if some you know I'm on one side of the street, the dog's on the other, and suddenly there's a car coming, and I might say stay. Um, or if I need the dog to come to me in a hurry because there's something going on over there I don't want them to see, or you know maybe there's a mean dog coming, then I say come. And the other thing is if they're doing something they shouldn't be doing, and I say stop. If you get those three down, then everything else is is a plus. And yeah, those are the basics. <laughs> those are the basics. And and I'm not and interested. And that applies in, to any breed. <laughs> it does. It applies to any breed. And I'm not interested in having having robot dogs. I'm interested in in us having a um, a mutually beneficial relationship where they get to express themselves and I get to express myself. And, you know, when we go out to play, um, they play different ways. Some of them are quite happy to be solitary and other ones like to, you know, do tug of war. And some of them like to, you know, see what kind of critters have been in the backyard the night before and sniff and other ones aren't interested. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I think, it, I think it's, it's, it's it's a, we do a disservice to expect all dogs or all dogs even of the same breed to behave the same way. Right, right. They very much are individuals. I know that just from I've had uh, Rottweilers for many years, and every single one has been their own individual person, actually, mm-hmm. with their own personality and their own behaviors and their own quirks. And mm-hmm. and that's what makes them who they are. And and I've noticed it's what really amazes me with every litter is how early this can start to show up. We can see who the bold one is, who the curious one is, who's the one that loves people. Um, it's just you know some of them are fascinated by a certain toy, and and my job is also to expose them to as much as I can in that eight week period. My my daughter is currently a university student, and over the last few years. We'll take um, litters of puppies into the um, the residence or the dorm, and they oh, wow. will. And we'll take them in for oh, two or three hours, and they'll play with fifty up to a hundred people over a period of two to three hours. And it's amazing to watch. It's it's almost like they they go through this incredible transition during this period of time, where at first they're a little overwhelmed with all these people, and it's like they come up to. I don't know, I could call it a wall. They come up through the wall and they stand there and suddenly they're through the wall 
and they're just fascinated by all these people. And once the puppies leave, I consistently get these reports from people about how well socialized they are, how well they respond um, to people, strangers, people they don't know. And I'm convinced that it, it's much, um, it's due in, in part to this exposure that we get with with these large numbers of people in a short period of time. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the students sure. love it because many of them have, they they live far away and they've left family pets behind and they miss their dogs. And so this gives them a chance to, to really relax. <laughs> get and, their dog and, fixed. <laughs> yeah, they get their dog fixed. So it works for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Definitely. So um, are there any particular problems with breeding that have made you consider not doing it anymore? Um, I did have a couple situations. I had one where um, a dog couldn't, she couldn't whelp naturally, and so I had to take her to a vet, and it was a vet that I wasn't familiar with. And it, it was a series of, a combination of, I don't know, bad decisions and perhaps bad luck, and I lost a number of puppies in that litter, and I was so devastated that I almost thought that I couldn't continue. Mm-hmm. And and yet I did, and, and so now it's just, kind of a a distant memory. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. something I think about, but you just asked me how so I thought about it. And it's it's like it's like life. It's like in in our lives we're going to have difficult moments, we're going to have um times where we don't feel like we can go on. Um but if we don't go on, then we're really missing a lot. So if I think about had I stopped at that time, all the the joy and and um, wonderful puppies that have come into the world that I would have missed. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. glad I didn't stop, but it, it can be a challenge. Uh, there were there was one time when I did have a large litter, and I didn't I didn't have enough clients for all the puppies at the time they were ready to go. And I remember calling you up, and I said, "Mary, I don't know what to do." And you said, "Oh no, I see them all going. Five will go at once, and the other ones will go one by one." And that's exactly what happened. So it's also been the, this breeding. Um, apart from the actual fact of raising puppies and, and placing puppies with families, it's also been uh, my own um, evolution in terms of my own faith, my own trust in life, and mm-hmm. learning to trust my intuition and learning to trust um, you know, the little messages that might seem subtle. Sometimes they hit me over the head with a hammer, and sometimes they're quite subtle in, in terms of matching mm-hmm. up the puppies with um, the right families. I had yeah, a yeah. I had a really interesting story um uh, early last year and I had a a litter and uh, had a certain number of I think it was oh, five males and three females or and I was trying to allocate them so that everybody got the dog they wanted and I was getting down to the end and something wasn't working something wasn't working and there was a woman who came and <clears throat> She actually came all the way up. I had three people come up from the States to pick up their puppies. And and she went to bed. She, I said she could stay here that night. And so when she went to bed, she was sure she was going to go home with um, one of the males. And that night she had a dream. And uh, her father, who had passed away many years before, came to her in this dream. And he, he was taking his shirt on and off. And she said, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I said, oh, because we have one puppy, and her name is Chemise, which is almost like the French word chemise, which means shirt. And hmm. she looked at me, <laughs> and I looked at her, and we picked up Chemise, and, and she said, you know, I, it doesn't make any sense that he would come to me and, and, and be doing that unless he was trying to tell me something. And so she she actually believed so strongly in this dream 
that she changed her mind the next morning, which probably she was going to go home. And because of her changing her mind, then everything else fell into place. Isn't that interesting? Oh, my God. (laughs) You know, sometimes I think I must be crazy. I must be making this up every time, and yet it it, Mm -hmm. it just keeps happening. Uh Um, yeah, you know. well, I've done. I've been doing this for about twenty years now, and it certainly has made a believer out of me. Yeah, so. yeah, well, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yep. And you've made well, a believer out of me too. Well, we are actually getting to the end of our time here mm-hmm. together, and so what I'd like to do is have you give people your contact information and and um, let them know how to get in touch with you if they are considering um, getting an Intelbuker puppy. Mm-hmm. And um, and what are your prospects for uh, litters that are coming up in the future? Well, I would say this year I'll be having at least two litters and possibly possibly a third one um, in the fall, probably one or two um, this spring and early summer, and another one in the fall. I do have um, a waiting list already, but if anyone would like to find out how to get on the waiting list or or if they just want to talk about the breed and ask me questions, they can do that too. Um, they can call me at area code 902-624-1055. And just keep in mind that I'm in the Atlantic time zone, which is one hour later than the Eastern time zone. So if you're calling from California, make sure that I'm I'm still up. <laughs> and well, my and from we- Minnesota, I'm in Minnesota, and it's a two-hour time difference. Right, so, right. Mm-hmm. so we're already two hours later here. Uh, my you website. want to repeat your number again? Sure. 902-624-1055 or 1055. Okay. And you mentioned you have a website and, and a Facebook page too? I do have a website. My Facebook page right now is still under my own name, but I'm in the process of making one just for the for the breed, I mean for my kennel. Um, my website is entlebucher.com, E-N-T-L-E-B-U-C-H-E-R.com. And if you want to send me an email, you can send it to karen at entlebucher.com, and I'll be sure to answer it. Okay. And so, right now your uh, Facebook page is under just your Karen own name, Rungi. Is, mm-hmm. And that's spelled R-U-N-G-E, right? R-U-N-G-E, right. Okay, great. Well, I just want to thank you so much for being my guest this evening and giving us all this information. I was just at the uh, Lando Lakes Dog Show in St. Paul this last weekend where there were many, many breeds represented. It's a very large show. And that brought me that brought this whole topic to mind that I had never talked on this show about uh dog breeding and what mm-hmm. goes into it and since um I've known you for so many years and been involved in so many of your litters, I thought this was the perfect opportunity for yeah. you and I to chat about this so and, I really and I, appreciate um all of the knowledge and wisdom that you've shared with us this evening. Thank you. And I just want to say one thing. It's really important when when someone is contacting a breeder um, to make sure they can ask as many questions as they feel like. If the breeder cuts them off or doesn't want to answer the questions, that's a real red flag for me. Um, Mm -hmm. A breeder should be willing to share all kinds of information. And the breeder, you want a breeder who cares about where their dogs go, not just somebody who's trying to sell puppies. Good to know. Yeah. 
definitely. Again, so, thank you so much. And uh, again, my name is Mary Stoffel. Um, I am an animal communicator and shamanic practitioner. My phone number is 763-444-8146. That's 763-444-8146. My website is www.humanimal.com. That's H-U-M-A-N-I-M-A-L, www.humanimal.com. So I thank you so much for joining us this evening. And again, thank you, Karen, for for being my guest. Hope everybody is staying warm. <laughs> and um, and I invite you to check out the Entelbuker breed and contact Karen if you're interested in getting a puppy. I know how special these dogs are. Thank you again. Thank you. Good night. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.